Purim. Just in case anyone doesn't know, this is Purim Katan. It's not only Purim Katan, it's Shushan Purim Katan. This is the, we're just starting right now the 15th of Adar. And this is the only place in the world that we have Purim, Shushan Purim Katan. It's right here. This is it. So, say L'chaim to everyone. L'chaim, L'chaim. L'chaim, L'chaim. Baruch Atom There's also some amaretto here, if anyone wants. And there's some cookies and cake, and we run out, we'll go, we'll run over the shook and get some more. <laughs> So what we want to do today is we're really going to turn this into like like forum. So we're going to do some singing, some music, some learning, some lachaims, more lachaims, and it's going to go to approximately nine o'clock. I don't think we're going to really. Take any at the, the breaks will be singing breaks, right? So people are welcome to stay as long as you like, and if it's really going strong, who knows? You might go longer than that o'clock. We'll see. And there's a pressure here tomorrow. Right, right. <laughs> Everyone should notice, please, 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 please. Every Thursday night at Moshe's house, who's been very graciously hosting us for a couple of years now, eight o'clock. Uh-huh every Thursday night, Parsha, and we also sing and eat, and we don't make that many lachans, but, <laughs> but hopefully the shiur is, is high enough that we can <laughs> to go that way. Chaim, chaim, chaim. Okay, let's start with some singing. This is one of Rav Shalma's fairly, not new, but newly <coughs> known about Niguni. And it's always great to sing the, the standard ones. It's always great to learn new ones, too. So if you know it, please join in immediately. And after one or two times, I'm sure you'll have Oh, my God. 
Mechaim, 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 Judy. Mechaim, Judy. You have so many brachas for opening your house to so much Torah learning. You should have brachas and parnasa, ruchnios and gashias. Because you know the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said that when Mashiach comes, Purim Katan will be like like the greatest Chag in the world. Be the greatest Chag in the world. Right now, it's like it's very hidden, very hidden. So there are many many reasons, but just one that I'll give is we only we only have Purim Katan in a leap year. It's not a leap year, we just have regular Purim. Mm-hmm. But when it's a leap year, so then we get we get two Purims. But what is a leap year called in Hebrew? Um, close. Shana, Shana Meuberet. Meuberet, which is the same thing. It means pregnant. It means a pregnant year. <laughs> pregnant. So this month <laughs> is called a month of, of pregnancy. So that means that there, in other words, what is this month pregnant with? <laughs> with a future forum. <laughs> when the shell comes. You know, it won't really be revealed until Mashiach comes, if it's so hidden. Just like the, the fetus is, is totally hidden within the womb until it actually comes out. Mm-hmm. And so, Mashiach isn't here yet. He's on his way. But when Mashiach comes, so this month that was pregnant for thousands of years since we got a Jewish calendar, will then actually reveal what was hidden there the whole time. So that's what the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, that when Mashiach comes, Purim Katan will be like, incredible, just like after Mashiach comes, Tishabab will turn into the greatest holiday. Now can you imagine? Tishabab comes and you're like, you're almost by automatic, you start getting depressed a month before. But now Mashiach's here, and like when Tishavah comes, it's like, wow, now we can celebrate. So Purim Katan, this is about, what do you say when you, when you give a baby a name at, at a bris? So you say, this Katan, Gadoliyah, right? This little one, he's eight days old. You're giving him a name, he's like this big, but you're saying he's going to be great. So it's the same thing with Purim Katan. Right now it's very small, but in the future, it'll be Gadol. It'll be Gadol. So part of the trick is, also according to Lubavitcher Rebbe, however we understand that, this, people understand it differently. But he said, Mashiach is already here. Just open your eyes. So this, this is the secret of the future being present already. In other words, scientifically and spiritually, past, present, and future 
they're all they're all happening at the same time. They're all happening at the same time. It's interesting. This is a, this is a teaching I give over extensively, and really develop it. So just last night, there's a new, I think it's new, uh, film about Bob Dylan. Um, it's a very interesting film. Yeah, different actors by him at different stages. Uh, I have some criticism of it. Some of it was very good, but the very last thing was a quote that he probably said 40 years ago. He said something like this. He said, I feel like I'm in a room where the past, the present, and the future are all there. And when that happens, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. That's how the movie ended. But what he was saying was, was so, so true. So this idea of Mashiach here, just open your eyes. So Rabbi Shlomo used to say, you have to have Mashiach eyes. He would say, when you want to see something like very deep, he used to call it Mashiach eyes. So on Purim Katan, if we have Mashiach eyes, then we could already already taste the, the simple of Mashiach. Simple of Mashiach. Chaim, 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 Chaim. So I have a, a number of different parts. They all, they all connect. They all flow together. But what I'll do is, at, at, after each Torah, then we'll stop and we'll sing some and we'll play some music. And that way we'll have a, so to speak, division between the different Torahs. So I want to start with something, uh, we're going to start very practical and move into high gear. Because this year is a different kind of Purim. It's just called Purim Mishulash. It's a three-day Purim in Jerusalem. This, it happened, I think, around three years ago, and before that it was like seven or eight years ago. It happens at, at different times. It's not totally unusual, but... Yes, <laughs> but it only happens in Jerusalem that you have what's called a Purim Mishulash. So I want to explain from a very halachic point of view, just so people understand what's, what's about to happen, is that regular Purim, meaning the 14th of Adar, comes out this year on a Thursday night and Friday. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. But Shushan Purim then falls on Shabbos. And there are all these things that the sages determined that we don't mix Purim and Shabbos together. So then the question is, so what do you do? What happens to Shushan Purim? And so it, it's very, very interesting how it turns out. So if anyone's taking notes, this might be good for you because it could be a little bit confusing. So in the rest of the country, we keep Purim like any other year. Like any other year. You do all the mitzvahs on, on one day, Thursday night and Friday. The only difference is, we're told that we're supposed to start our Suda earlier, so you can finish and clean up and get ready for Shabbos 
before Shabbos. But what about Yerushalayim? Because when would you usually hear the Megillah? It would turn out on Shabbos. And the sages determine, just like we don't blow shofar on Shabbos, and we don't shake lulav on Shabbos, because of the fear that people would carry the Megillah, or the shofar, or the lulav, in Rashut Rabin, in a public domain without an error. So, the way it turns out is, in Yerushalayim, you read the Megillah on Thursday night and Friday, like everyone else in the country. The only time it happens. So, for those of you who will be in Yerushalayim, you'll read the Megillah Thursday night and Friday. But, it's not really your Purim. So, this feast is put off till Sunday. And Mishloach Manot is also put off till Sunday. Because those go together. Because in a technical sense, when we send Mishloach Manot, it's supposed to be part of a person's Suda. And now, everyone makes up 50 baskets and you know, gives to the whole world. But from a, a more practical point of view, people used to send food for the Suda. To be eaten at the Suda. So... In Yerushalayim, the Suda is on Sunday, Mishloach Manot is on Sunday, but Matanot Le'evyonim, gifts to the poor, is always connected to Megillah. So, in Yerushalayim, people will give the gifts to the poor on Friday, like everyone else in the country. So, do you see how it's it's split up now. So then you say, well, what happens on Shabbos? So a very interesting thing happens. For people in Yerushalayim, you will say, al Hanisim in Shemona Esrei, and in Benching on Shabbos. On Shabbos, and not on, no, and not on Sunday. Because Sunday is not really, it's already passed. It's the 16th of Adar. So you see this is like a, a classic, um, I, don't, I don't want to use the word compromise, but trying to figure it all out, it's spread out over three days. So it's really, that's what they call it, poor mishulash, because every day has something. Again, Thursday is Kriyat Megillah and Matanot Le'avionim, gifts to the poor. Shabbos is... Alanisim. Oh, and, very interesting, and in Yerushalayim, the week before Purim is Parshat Zachor. This is where we read about destroying Amalek. And this is what's called a Mitzvah Deoraita. It is the only reading of the Torah during the year that's considered a Torah mitzvah. Because right now, we don't go out and physically destroy Amalek. So that's a possibility. But what we do is we read the portion of the Torah about Amalek. So we do this a week before. This is called Parshat Zachar. It's 
So interestingly enough, in Yerushalayim, they read it a second time. On Purim Meshulash, you read Parshat Zachor a second time. And the Haftorah is for uh, a special one for, for Parshat Zachor. So that is what's called Purim Meshulash. Everyone, everyone follow? Okay, so it really is spread out over three days. And drinking happens all three days. And for those who are <laughs> machmir, <laughs> right? <laughs> the truth is, for those outside of Yerushalayim, they can, it's also, in a sense, for Meshulash. Because when you go into, I don't know if anyone remembers going into Shabbos from Purim, <laughs> very interesting. <laughs> Kabbalah Shabbat is always very interesting, right? <laughs> and waking up the next morning is also very interesting. <laughs> but, met, I mean, tens of thousands of people come up to your shrine book for Shushan Purim. So it becomes also everywhere a poor Mishuash in a sense. Yeah? Because it's a walled city, and the sages determined that because, if you remember, on the 13th of Adar, that is when we actually fought with the followers of Haman, and in one day, uh, it was like the six-day war, but it was like one day. It was just like, incredible... Nafoku. Everything turned around. But in Shushan, there were still pockets of resistance. So in the Megillah, it says that Esther went to Ahasuerus and said, can we please have one more day to fight our enemies in Shushan? So Shushan was a walled city. So the sages determined, because there were these really two days of fighting, and it said that the people in Shushan didn't celebrate till the next day, because they were fighting that day. So they were fighting on the 14th, when, when everyone else was, in a sense, resting from the battle, and celebrating in the rest of the country. So the sages determined that, that, that any city that was walled from the time of Yehoshua bin Nun, from the time that Yeshua came into the land, should keep the second day of, of Purim. The only place in the world that does it 100% is Yerushalayim. There are many places, though, that do it what's called from Sabbath. That there is a question whether there was a, a wall there. So, I might be mistaken, but many people in Spot will keep a second day from Sabbath, Hebron, Not sure. I don't know if I've heard about Tiberia. Yeah, ah, we're going to the side, yeah. Yeah. But there are a few, I think maybe some people in Lud, there's a question whether there was a complete wall at the time of Yoshua. But Yoshua is the only place that does it, does it for sure. No, see Paris actually says what it is in the time at, from the time of Yeshua, oh, okay. you have to be from Yeshua, but no. Okay, so that was just 
an introduction to what's coming up for him, but it's also an introduction to some very, very deep teachings about Purim. So, uh, some of these stories are from <coughs> the Shlomo Rebbe, from the Tiva Shalom, and commenting on the idea of, of Purim Mishulash. So, Purim Mishulash only happens because it's falling on Shabbos. So he makes a beautiful connection between three different things. Now the first thing many people have heard, and that is the Zohar says, when it says in the the Torah, when it talks about Yom Yom Kippur, it's never really called Yom Kippur. It's called Yom HaKippurim. So the Zohar, and what we'll call a play on words, says, don't read it Yom Kippurim, Read it, Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippurim. Now, this is an astounding statement for two reasons. Can someone tell me why is that such an astounding statement? There's at least two reasons. Well, one is that um, Purim is the happiest day of the year, and Yom Kippur is so solemn. So, if Yom is it's a light. If that is like there is some sort of an emotional disconnect. Okay, so that I have to say is half correct. Okay. Why? Why? Because it says in the Mishnah there were no uh, more joyous days than Yom Kippur and Tuba'av. So it's true that we think of Yom Kippur as being serious and solemn, and it is and full of awe and, and yira. But strangely, we're going we're gonna to get to that. So you're, I just had to put that in because you're correct that it seems like, what, what does Yom Kippur have to do with Purim? Right? Chronologically, ah. that makes sense. Okay. We get Yom Kippur way before the sort of Purim era happened, which is between the two, uh, but they meet the show. Right. So it seems strange that we're comparing something that happened later in history to a mitzvah that we're doing from Hashem, from Hashem. Right, exactly. Exactly. Yom Kippur is given 1,000 years before Purim, approximately. 1,000 years before So how can the Zohar say, you could compare Purim to Yom Kippur? But how could you compare Yom Kippur to Purim? Just chronologically. And also, in terms of Kedusha, so certainly the, the general view is that Yom Kippur is the, is the highest level of Kedusha, mm-hmm. and so Purim would be below it, but it's, it's sort of turning that around. Okay, exactly. Because also, other than the, let's say, the joy and the seriousness, we, we, we look at Yom Kippur, we call it the holiest day of the year, and Purim appears, you can do work. Yeah, <laughs> not as many Eliot. And... I mean, there's a yeah, whole yeah. range of things. It, just, it seems like, uh, like, how can you even compare them in the same breath? Yeah. Nonetheless, the, the, the Zohar does. So, the whole rest of tonight, in a sense, will be answering this question. Like, what's, what's the connection? So, we have this connection between Purim and Yom Kippur. But then, Yom Kippur is compared to another day. Shabbos. 
Because in the Torah, Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shabbaton. And this is not just figurative. Halakhically, Yom Kippur is different than any other holiday because its laws are like Shabbos. Not like any other holiday. So when the Torah says Shabbat Shabbaton, it means that spiritually, but also halakhically. So the Son of a Rebbe, we have like one plus one plus one here. In other words, Purim and Yom Kippur are compared, and Yom Kippur and Shabbos are compared, so then there must be, you know, if A equals B, how does someone help me? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So therefore, we have three things that are connected. So he said this is like the secret of Purim Mishulash. Because at Purim Mishulash, you have these three aspects that we're going to delve into. We're just bringing it up now. We're going to delve into these three aspects. So, some of the, these things that I'm about to say, the Slonim Rabbi said, and many things I just kind of took it one step further. But there are four areas where these three have an incredible amount in common. I'll tell you what there are, and then we'll go back one by one. One is the is Torah, Shuvah, Kapara, and Bito. I'll explain that. Torah, Shuva, repentance and coming close to Hashem, Kapara, atonement, and Bito, which means self-nullification. And we'll see how all three of them are connected. Now I want to throw something in here that's very, very important. For the same reason that we're thinking, how can you even compare Yom Kippur to Purim? Because many people think of Purim as a fun day. And it is. It really is fun. But when the sages and the Kabbalah talk about Purim, they really do mean that Yom Kippur is compared to Purim. Now they put Purim on the highest spiritual level. And many people don't don't learn sufficiently to really understand what we can get from Purim. That's what I'm hoping to give over tonight. In other words, everyone should have a great time on Purim. A great time. But there's a huge difference between fun and simcha. Simcha is not necessarily fun. Simcha's joy is a whole different thing. And they described that the joy in Purim, there is nothing that compares it. It's considered the highest joy of the year. So I'm hoping in the course of this evening and just to whet people's intellectual appetites to realize that on Purim, I can say, have a great time. Have, have a fun time. But don't miss the opportunity of the, the spiritual heights that you can reach on Purim. And that's, that's what, we'll, what we'll be sharing tonight. So let's start with this Torah. 
what's the connection between Purim, Shabbos, and Yom Kippur that has to do with Torah? So, on Yom Kippur, we received the second tablet. The second, Moshe came down on Yom Kippur with the second tablet. And that actually set the tone for all future Yom Kippurs. When Moshe came down with the second tablets, the laws of Yom Kippur as we know them, of fasting and atonement, had not been given yet. So that Yom Kippur, they didn't fast, because those laws hadn't been given yet. But what did they get? They got the second Luchot. They got the second Luchot. This was considered the sign of atonement. After the first tablets had been broken, what greater sign of peace between God and Israel and love is Moshe came down with the second tablets, and this time they weren't broken. So we received the Torah on, on Yom Kippur. What's the connection with Shabbos? Even though we read the Torah on Mondays and Thursdays and holidays, but the main time that we read the Torah is on Shabbos. Wasn't the start of Deborah given on Shabbos? Ah, thank you very much. That was the next yeah. thing. There is a disagreement in the Gemara whether the Torah was given on the 6th of Sivan or the 7th of Sivan. But the Gemara says, Lekulei Alma, the Shabbat Mitna. Everyone agrees that it was given on Shabbos. So, not, so that's the reason why we read a whole portion on Shabbos, is that the Torah was given on Shabbos. So obviously Shabbos is very connected. In the morning davening of Shemona Esrei, we say, Yismach Moshe b'matanat chalka. That Moshe rejoices in the portion that he was given. And then it continues, what was he given? The two tablets. It says it. That was the portion he was given. So Shabbos is very connected to Torah. But what about Purim? So Purim, in a sense, is the deepest connection to Torah. Why? Because at the end of the Megillah, when it's talking about the holiday of Purim, so it says... Kimu the Kibru. It was established and they received it. Meaning, Mordecai and Esther and the sages established Purim as a holiday. So it says, and they established it and they received it. What does the Gemara say? Uh, the word Kibru, they received. It says, they received this time from a full heart, what they didn't receive the first time with a full heart. <clears throat> Meaning that the first time that we received the Torah, remember the Midrash says that the, we received it the Tachtitahar, at the bottom of the mountain. And the Gemara says, what does it mean the bottom of the mountain? So it says, God held the mountain over our heads and said, if you receive the Torah today, good! And if not, this will be your burial place. 
So there's an aspect that we didn't have total free choice about receiving <laughs> the Torah. Right? It's like, I suppose if you looked up and saw Harsinai over your head, and you were told it's about to drop on you if you don't receive it, you would receive it. But is that called with a full heart? So the Gemara says that at Purim time, this time they received the Torah with a full heart. In other words, when people understood the miracles that had just happened, when people felt the appreciation and the and the connection with Hashem, they received the Torah from complete freedom. So here we see a beautiful connection between Purim, Shabbos, and Yom Kippur, and they all have very strong connections to Torah. So what is this telling us about Purim? What it's telling us about Purim on, on a personal level is there is an aspect on Purim where we can open our hearts and our souls and feel a connection to God that is hard put to feel any other time. And why? Because of the joy. Because when you reach a certain level of joy, it op- it just opens up the neshama like a flower. The neshama opens up, and you can start feeling a connection. So that's the second thing we want to talk about. So those who came in late, we're, we're learning the connections between Purim, Shabbos, and Yom Kippur, because this year is what's called Purim Meshulash, where in, in Jerusalem, Purim is going to be taking place over three days, Friday, Shabbos, and Sunday. So we're learning the connections here. So Tshuva, so let's start with Yom Kippur again. Okay, so Yom Kippur is the, the climax of the ten days of Tshuva. So we don't have to say too much about that. I mean, Yom Kippur is all about Tshuva and atonement and... Um, and pardon, slicha, machila, the kapara. That's what Yom Kippur is about. Now, but what's the connection with Shabbos and Tshuva? So if you look at the letters of Shabbat, and you just switch them around, it's Tashuv. It means to return. The letters of Shabbat mean to return. So we're told... That's very interesting. Because on Shabbos, we don't pray for any of our needs. We don't... We're like not in the tshuva mode of a lower tshuva. But we're told that Shabbos is the time for a higher tshuva. Because what does tshuva mean on a higher level? Not just repentance. It means just means to come close, to return. So we're told that on Shabbos <coughs> we're returning to our primordial connection to God. It's beyond I need this, I need that. I did this, I did that. I won't do this, I won't do that again. 
It's just about feeling connected to God. We get a second soul, Neshama Yitera, and on Shabbos, we, we feel in the bliss of Shabbos, so we feel where our Neshama is coming from. Tashuv, meaning to return, means the soul has an experience of returning to what it was like before it came into this world. That's the bliss of Shabbos. So Shabbos is really the highest tshuva. The highest tshuva. What about Purim? Like what, what does Purim have to do with tshuva? So it says in... in yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah, this one thing about this is to experience where Anishama came from was in this high place, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if we're coming here to become even higher, then it's, it's a strange thing to, to say that we're, we're experiencing this because we're coming to where we came from, which wasn't the highest, because coming down to here is the highest. So that's an excellent point, and that's when we see the connection between form and Shabbos. Because what you're saying is very, very true. You know, if, if being in heaven was the highest place, what are we doing down here? Why did God send us here? So you're, you're correct in that sense. But, sometimes, like once a week, called Shabbos, we need to refuel and remember where we're coming from and why we came down here and what we're supposed to do here. So Shabbos, you're very correct, but Shabbos is like refueling. It's like sometimes you set a goal and you get a quarter of the way there, a third, a half, and sometimes you start running out of steam. Why? Because you, it's so long since you set that goal, you start to forget why, why did I want to be a doctor anyways, right? In your seventh year of schooling, right? And, and the student loans are up to here. It's like, why was it that I wanted to be a doctor after you've been up for 36 straight hours, right? So we need to rec- always reconnect to our source. But you'll see 100% that that's why quorum is considered the highest because on the surface, it seems like the lowest. Like, what's so special about Purim? It seems the most mundane of all days. In fact, we go out of our way you know, with our eating and drinking and costumes and, and kind of like skulk fooling around that it seems like the most mundane. But that's where we'll see that the highest tshuva is. Yeah. I, you asked a question about how Purim is connected to Shuvah, and I, I can understand how when the, I heard Tzadim Shur that when Achashverosh gave Haman his ring, more due to Shuvah at one moment than for many a year. But then uh, Jewish people have been celebrating Purim for a generation, so how, how do we experience the Shuvah of Purim? Because we're not under the threat of Haman, uh, oh, I mean, maybe we are. Actually, in this generation, yeah. for many generations, yeah. how did they experience the true connection? Ah, okay. Okay. So, little by little, we'll develop this. Great point. It says that when Achashverosh took off his ring and gave it to Haman, 
they did more for the tshuva movement than anything in the world. In other words, it, it created the circumstances where people like, had to cry out to Hashem, had to call out. So, the truth is, this, this is one of the things I want, to, I want to put out, that the day before Purim is Tiny Esther. And usually on Tiny Esther, we're already thinking about Purim. We're not, but that's a Chabal. That's a Chabal, because really, you know what it's like? Yom Zikaron followed immediately by Yom Atzma'ut. In other words, you can't really understand Independence Day here without feeling Yom Zikaron. So they put the fast of Esther, even though the fast of Esther actually happened on the 13th, 14th, and 15th of Nisa, a whole month later, it's not it's really not in its chronological place when we fast it. Yeah, and also three days. But they put it the day before in order that we would make the connection. And the truth is, the truth is, every year we are confronted by Haman. Um, if, um, if one, one set one against the other so that we, that we see the contrast and with Purim being the most joyous of all the days why wouldn't Amitani Desa be a full day because it's only a uh, daytime fast oh. not really sure maybe let's say the sages had Rachmanas on us <laughs> We only have two all day fasts the whole year. Maybe we just want to have Rachmanus on us. That's a very good question. Very good question. Um, and also for health wise, it's probably better. We fasted for totally for 24 hours and then ate, ate and drank. Probably more of a sakana. Huh? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. 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 Just a lot of before you oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. What are we meant to do on the fast during ah, the fast? Ah, so that's what I'm trying to say is to really, really appreciate Purim and tiny Esther. We really have to at least for five minutes to really think that this is a, a real story that almost happened that wiped out all the Jews. In other words, see, if there wasn't the person who rose in Germany 50 years ago, we might look at the, at the story of Purim and say, well, you know, he said he wanted to destroy all the Jews. He probably didn't mean it. It was just a, a ploy. But after what happened in the Holocaust, and then you read the story of Purim, he was for real. He had every intention of doing exactly what he said. So, Purim can't mean the same to us if we don't take five minutes on tiny Esther to really think about this. And not only that, just like on Pesach, we say, In every generation, they stand up to destroy us. But God comes and He helps us. What is the story of Purim? That's what it's all about. But we know that all of the holidays are not happening just in the past. 
They're happening in the present now. And I'm not going to get into it, but there are forces in the world right now that are trying their best to create a situation where they can destroy Israel. The story of Purim is, is, is more real than real. It is more real than real. And therefore, on Tiny Esther, we have to take at least five minutes to seriously consider that what Haman was proposing, he had every intention to do, and today there are people who have every intention to do what they say they want to do. And why don't we have a scene that sort of gets out of it? Seems like it should be that should be real, and it, but there's a sort of an out to, to not necessarily deal with those feelings. Why well, because we have the next day? Yeah, well, this, this, oh. yeah, you go to a seum and then you don't have to fast. No, oh, I say go to a seum. Okay, uh, you're right. You're right. A seum is if you do. Some people have a tradition. If you make a um, a completion of a tractate in Gomorrah. Or, or other types of burning, that you can make a meal even on uh, a fast day. But I don't, know, I don't think I'm tiny Esther. You can do that on, on, on the fast of the firstborn before Pesach. But uh, people don't do that on tiny Esther, not that I know. Not that I know. Okay. Yeah. My question is much more, since I've been... Um, in a, uh, in a milieu where, you know, we have a forum, we have this, we have that, and I've never really known anything more than, you know, it's a, it's a happy holiday. Uh, kids get dressed up, et cetera, et cetera. But now, to hear what we're talking about, I think it's terribly important, you know, to, uh, to get the word out, so to speak, that, uh, that it is Mamash, a, a, um, a uh, holiday that has to do with the present. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, I don't know how to do that, but I would hope that there are some people who are doing that. Yeah, um, that's what we're doing here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Chuba of Purim is that Esther said, Lech knows that call Go and gather up all the Jews and fast for me for three days, and I and all of my assistants will fast also. So it's brought down in Kasidut that we were able to do tshuva because it was gather up all the Jews, and and we know from Israel. Uh, I'd say a little sadly that a lot of times it takes war to really bring us together. But when there is war here, it's amazing how the Jewish people come together. It's really, really amazing. But they did, they did real tshuva. They did real, real tshuva. So, again, every time I'm going to say, well, what does that mean to us now? So there's an expression on Purim that says that let's say for, for charity you have a mitzvah to give charity but you don't have to give to everyone you don't have to give to everyone you can use your discretion 
But it says about Purim, anyone who stretches out their hand to you, give them. So the Hasidic Rebbe said we should learn from this and everyone should stretch out their hand to Hashem because Hashem has to keep the Torah also. And so if we stretch out our hand to Hashem, He's got to give. And so the Hasidic Rebbe said you think that the David and the Yom Kippurs is like opening up gates. It says the davening on Purim can open up even greater gates. And I'll just I'll just share something. It's not every year, not every year, but most years, I don't get through Purim without crying. Unfortunately, I don't cry every Yom Kippur. I wish I did. I wish I did. But, <laughs> Purim, it's rare for me to get through a Purim without me like crying a little bit. Not from brokenness, just from like wanting to be so close to Hashem and not feeling like quite there. Right? It manifests itself in different ways. And so this idea, whoever stretches out your hands, you give them. So we're told that's how we should be gathering to Hashem. So that's the connection with Chuba. Let's do the other two, and then we'll take a, a singing break. For those in the back here, please, when we take a break, there's some wine here. Please, everyone come and, and have a little, yeah. No, every, everyone who got the word. And that's why the Mishnah says there was no day more joyous in Israel than Yom Kippur because if you're feeling guilt or you're feeling unfulfilled or you're feeling... Um, spiritually frustrated, whatever it is. And then that feeling passes. Let's say, I'm just using an example, you got in a fight with a family member, a best friend, a spouse, whatever. And it's just weighing on you. It's just weighing on you. And then you make up. It's like you can breathe again. It's like a mountain has been lifted from your shoulders. So that's what Yom Kippur is. Is God says once a year, once a year, I'll wipe your slate clean. Can there be anything more joyous than that? To feel that God understands all of my weaknesses, all of my foibles, all of my 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 mistakes, and God forgives and atones. So that's Yom Kippur. Shabbos, it's the same thing about, about the tshuva. It's, it's a higher level of Again, It's not atonement for anything I did wrong. 
His atonement just feels like we're being cleansed. And Yom Kippur says over and over again in the, from the prophet from uh, Yechezkel in God's name that I will pour pure waters over you and cleanse you. I will pour over you cleansing waters. It feels so good. Even if you just visualize it, it feels good. And Shabbos is just the whole day is that experience. It's just that experience. But we'll add something else. There is a a Hasidic tradition to go to the mikvah for men before Shabbos. So it says in the Gemara, Met be'erev Shabbat Siman Yafelo. A person dies on Arab Shabbos, it's a good sign to him. Because you die, it's assumed that you're going to be buried, and you go right into Shabbos. Right? Like, what else could you want? But the Baal Shem Tov explains it a little bit different. He explained it along with the custom to go to the Mecca. You don't have to go to the Mecca for this, but it helps. When, when you go under the water, so we're told part of the experience in the mikvah, it's a rebirth. Because you go under the water, you go back into the womb. It's like a pre-birth experience. When you come out of the mikvah, it's like reborn. That's where baptism comes from. Baptism is a mikvah. <laughs> Very clear. So the Baal Shem Tov said... It's a good sign to have your ego die on Arab Shabbos, so you you're, you feel new to receive Shabbos. So he said one of the best ways, not the only way, but one of the best is by going to the mikvah, because submerging, you have the kavana of of self-nullification, that's the next thing we're going to get to, then you're atoned for, and everything is atoned for, on a weekly level. Now remember, Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shabbaton, because Yom Kippur is plugging into the atonement of Shabbos, because of the atonement of Shabbos. Okay, now one last area that we're going to see a connection between the three, that's what's called Bittal self-nullification. So we just touched on it. But we'll start with Yom Kippur again. That's the order we've been doing. So the Rabbi Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev said a very interesting thing. He said, right? Oh, okay. So he said, the atonement, he's talking in a spiritual sense. He said, the atonement of Yom Kippur only works if a person for at least a few moments in the Kippur is able to really rebuttal their ego. That, in other words, imagine this waterfall, the atonement's like a waterfall. And you're here, and the water's coming down, but then there's a, like a machit figure. It's hitting like a bridge, and it's pouring all around you. It's not getting in you. That's the ego. So let me just look at the Jesus. So you have to take away the ego 
to be able to feel the atonement. So that's the connection with the bitul, and it's connected to bowing down in Yom Kippur. Except for Rosh Hashanah, where we bow down one time, but on Yom Kippur we bow down four times. We get down on our hands and knees four times, and this is called bitul vayesh, nullifying ourselves completely. So when you you get you go down, that's that's the Hasidic Kavana is like, like like a servant would bow to their master. And, and to actually physically get on the ground and do that is a very, very humbling uh, experience in the most positive sense. In the most positive sense. And Shabbos so the bittal of Shabbos is that they say that Shabbos is one sixtieth of the world to come. That the world to come were were beyond ego at that point. It's, a, it's an egoless state, and Shabbos is one sixtieth. So every Shabbos we experience, that's the real bliss of Shabbos. Because we're not thinking about what we have to do. We're not thinking about what we did. We're not thinking about anything except being in the moment of Shabbos. Like it's just, we're the covered Shabbos Kodesh. We're eating for the covered Shabbos Kodesh. We're dominating for the honor of Shabbos. The bliss of Shabbos is being beyond our ego. Just like the Baba Chirabi said, the Mashiach is here. Just open your eyes. So in Shabbos, we say the world to come is here. Just, just open, just experience it. It's here. It's here. And then Apurim, so this is the highest one of all. You're supposed to drink Apurim to what state? to the place you don't know oh my I'm sorry Adelo Yada is the epitome it is the climactic moment of self-nullification. Greater than Yom Kippur, greater than Shabbos. But, I'll tell you a secret. You do not have to be drunk under the table to reach that level. <laughs> the good news is, the good news is, you could be <laughs> and reach there, but you don't have to be. The halacha says, you, you can just drink a little bit more than your usual drink. And you don't even have to do that. You can just take a little nap and get to Adeloyada <laughs> But it helps to drink a couple of chayans. But the Adeloyada, so we're told that there are 50 gates of understanding. And in a sense, the 50th is Adeloyada. The highest level Adelaide means until you don't know. 
Remember what Rabbi Nachman said? He said the greatest knowledge is right, to know that I don't know. <laughs> That's the greatest knowledge, to know that I don't know. But usually, I'm just saying from my experience, usually it's usually it's just a few minute experience to reach that that state where you're you're just beyond everything you're beyond you just basically what it means is that you're one with God you're just one with God and and when you're one with God there's, there's no like there's no intellectual knowledge there. It's just you're one. That's that's all. That's what it is. There's no there's really no <coughs> definition you can you can put on it. Anyways, so we just just to review, we just saw all these beautiful connections. Especially for, this is true every year, by the way. But especially this year when it's for Mishulash. And Shabbos is right in the middle, so we see all these connections between Purim, Shabbos, and Yom Kippur, as they manifest in the level of, of Torah, Shuba, Kapara, and, and Bittal. Okay. So this is this is a song from Misha Nichnas Adar, Marvin Besimcha. You don't know this song. I don't know it so good either. But <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we'll pick it up. I'll start it slow. <laughs> Thank you. 
fun. Actually, remember I said before there's a difference between fun and simcha? So strangely enough, I call it the fun song. Okay. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
to look a little bit closer to the connection between Purim and Yom Kippur. But that was the first thing that the Zohar said that Yom Kippurim, Yom Kippurim. And we had, even though we learned all of these comparisons, there's still a question that seemed like such opposites. On, on Yom Kippur we fast, on Purim we feast. On Yom Kippur, we dress all in white like angels. On Purim, we dress like who knows what. <laughs> on Yom Kippur, we don't do any work like Shabbos. On Purim, you're not. You can do any, and there's no Isser Malacha. There's no forbidden works. And they see the message seems to be just the opposite. So now, there's, <coughs> what's interesting is, there's a statement in the Gemara that says, in the future, after Mashiach comes, all of the holidays will be nullified. Except, Purim. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? Purim? Why? Because after Mashiach comes, it'll be a time of great joy, so why not have the... the oh. Ah, okay. So you're like, hot. <laughs> you're like, that warm, you're hot. Okay, that's one of the reasons. Is because Purim represents this unbounded joy. Even though all of the holidays are, this v'chagecha. Be joyous in your holidays. So every... Holiday has an aspect of joy, but the Purim is like without bounds. It's like beyond, beyond bounds. It's and it's also man-made. So why? So why would that mean that it should be eternal? Okay, so that's a very good answer. Very, very nice answer, because you would think it would be one of the holidays that God gave us. The Dafka, it's one of the ones that we made up. We only made up two holidays on the Kimpurim. This was the first one. That was, <coughs> see, that's one of the ideas of Purim. It was the first holiday added by the sages. This was like, in other words, there was, just, there was a Chiddush. There was something so new about the feeling that happened at Purim, they, made, they felt they had to make a holiday. From the time that the Torah was given, a thousand years had gone by. There were many, many miracles, and many times the Jewish people have been saved. But n- no time did all of the people feel simultaneously something phenomenal just happened here. And they wanted to capture this. That's a very good answer. The other surprising answer is 
It's Dafka because Purim is so mundane. It's Dafka because it's so mundane that it will last forever. But there is another statement in the Gemara that says all of the holidays will become nullified except Purim and one other holiday. No. That's the other opinion. It's not just Purim, it's Purim and Yom Kippur. So again, they're connected. So here we have the two opposites that really complement each other. Each one needs the other. In other words, there's something about Yom Kippur that is so holy, but it can't be the total example to us because, as was pointed out before, we don't live like angels. We're not angels. We're people. And in Yom Kippur, we try to be like angels. Where would we be without Yom Kippur? We need that experience once a year. That's what I would say like about Shabbos. We need Shabbos to remind us what we're supposed to do here. We need Yom Kippur once a year to remind us what it's all about. But that's not the example for us. God did not put us in this world to fast and not have marital relations and not wear not wear comfortable clothes and not drink and not anoint us, all the things that you can't do in Yom Kippur, and stay all day in Shul. That's not what God put us in this world for. He put us in this world, in a sense, more for Purim, that you can do, you're, you're not bound by things that you can't do. So the trick of Purim, and this is something we should remember, the trick of Purim is how to take the mundane and make it holy. Aren't we told that that's what the mitzvahs are about? Aren't we told that that's what all of Yiddishkeit is like directing us is to take the physical world and to make it holy. And Yom Kippur, we separate from the physical world. Mm -hmm. And that we need to experience that. It's very important. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is to be engaged in the world and to make the world holy. And that is epitomized by Purim more than any other holiday. That is the, the meaning of Purim. We'll see a little bit later how we can expand on this idea. But there's also an incredible connection between Yom Kippur and Purim as far as the seal. Because we're told that at Yom Kippur, what happens in Ni'ila? We're told it's the closing of the gates. That the judgment is sealed. And then we're told, not exactly, we still have to Hoshana Rabbah. Still have to the last day of Sukkot. The judgment has been given, but there's still like clemency, there's still pardon, there, there could be a revolution and, 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 and the courts are overthrown. Like, all kinds of things can happen. So we're told that it's not really sealed until Hoshana Rabbah. 
You know when we hit the the Aravot on the ground and Hashanah Rabbah five times? Mm-hmm. We're told that's the Mitzvah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. That really is it. And then all that is left to do is dance on Simchat There's nothing left to do. But then Hasidus came along and said, even then, not quite sealed until Hanukkah. Until you have to, to Hanukkah. Why? Because we make all these promises in Elul and Tishrei, but we're so busy davening, we don't have time to like do any of them. I'm just kidding. But, but a lot of time, no, we make these, these promises, we're going to do this and do that, but okay, well, I'll, wait, I'll wait till the year actually starts because I'm so busy and sure. And then we start, so Hasidah says, well, let's see what we actually, God wants to see what we actually do. And so the lights of Hanukkah shed light on our own judgment. Like, are we doing what we said we would do? If not, then it's the old. Like two things like parole. Of what? Parole. Non parole. In modern uh, law. Like, uh, oh, yeah? Parole gets out early. Oh, okay, so okay. They're scrutinizing what he does. Okay, and okay. If he makes one mistake, he goes back. Yeah, yeah, okay. So they call that parole. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. Exactly, exactly. And then there's another idea, though. In the end of the Megillah. So if you remember when Akashur took off his ring and gave it to Haman, so they sent out a proclamation that in a year's time everyone would raise arms and destroy the Jews. That was the proclamation that was sent out. Everyone be ready. And at, on the right at, on, on the right date that everyone would destroy the Jews. Okay, so then in the meantime, Haman is hung. And so Esther says, um, can, can you just rescind the order? So in the Megillah, Akashvara says, no. Now once a, once a, decree has been sent out with the stamp of the king, it cannot be returned. So, what's going to be? So, he said, oh, we'll send a new one. So, this is point. In other words, sometimes, sometimes, a judgment is, is final. And it's sealed and it's signed, and <coughs> it, it can't be returned. It cannot be returned. The Purim is revealing a whole new level of tshuva. That, and this is the this is brought down in Hasidus. It's brought down that Yom Kippur doesn't atone for everything. Remember, on the simple understanding, we're told it atones for the sins between man and God. But if you stole money from someone, Chassid you could stand in shul from now until next Yom Kippur saying, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me, 
At the end of the end of the day, God will say, "Just return the money. Then come talk to me." So, in other words, there's certain things that that even Yom Kippur doesn't atone for. But we're told that on Purim, that Purim atones for things that even on Yom Kippur it's not atoned for. And this is symbolized by sending out a new decree. That's what they did. In the Megillah, they sent out a new decree saying that the Jews could stand against their enemies. They were given freedom to, to stand up against their enemies. So it was a whole new decree. You know what this is like? Yeah, remind me, you want to say something. Um, it says in the Gomorrah about rain. Says what happens if between Rosh Hashanah and Yom, let's say Sukkot, because the world is judged for rain on Sukkot. Let's say, Pastor Sholem, God judges that, the, that Israel should get very little rain. They don't deserve it. And then the Gemara says, but what happens if we do Shuba after that? Can we, can we change the decree? So the Gemara says an amazing thing. It says, no. Once the decree is made, that's it. But, let's say God determined that there would be 40 centimeters of rain this year in Israel. So what God will do is, first of all, those 40 centimeters can come all at once and be a big flood and destroy things and the earth can't really absorb it and it runs off and that's the rain for the year. So God will have the same 40 centimeters fall but it will fall at the right time in the right place in the right circumstances. That's how the good one answers. In other words, to change a decree we're told is, is not an easy thing. Even though God does it by making it that it will be the most positive thing in the world. But Purim is teaching us a whole different level of tshuva. And that's why we're told the... And again, it doesn't have to be this way. But we're told that a lot of people need a couple of mechayans to open themselves up. Nichnas yayin, they'll say so. Wine goes in and the secret comes out. Even in Yom Kippur, we're told it's not so easy to open up our hearts and souls to God. So we're told that that's what we can be doing at point. So that's what I was saying before is like, okay, we're having a good time in Purim. And there's a, the people forget about where we can reach and from. The kind of chula that we can do. The kind of closeness out of the Lord of God that we can reach. It's like when, when the sages are telling us that form is on a level higher than everything, we shouldn't get, in a sense, mesmerized by having a good time and forget of what depths we can reach up from. Yeah, I'm sorry, what do you uh, I I don't know if you like to repeat and maybe different words with me. I just don't understand the concept of not being able to change the judgment or the decree um, because it's like the king or it's Hashem. It just doesn't make sense to me that it, it couldn't be changed. 
Uh, I'll take an example. It may or may not be the best example. We would, we would, we would like to think that every, every decree can be changed or rescinded. But if we realize that this is not our first time around, each one of us has a long soul history, and we don't know exactly what's best for us. So let's say, someone is diagnosed with a, uh, a disease that you can't recover. Told you have three months. So everyone knows <coughs> that many people have been given three months, make it three years, make it ten years, make it fifteen years. But many times, in the end, they do pass away from what they were originally diagnosed with. But through tshuva, through good deeds, through prayer, it's like stretch, stretch. I'll never forget, my father was diagnosed with cancer. And I went to see the doctor, a very unsympathetic doctor. He said... It's like the worst type of this type of cancer. He has three to five years at best. I said, isn't there anything that could be done? No. No. Is there any kind of diet or... No. I really came out like devastated. I was devastated by the... By the Yachas of the doctor, and also just what he had said. In the end, my father lived ten more years, and he died of something else. <laughs> but <coughs> sometimes the decree can't be changed. Sometimes the decree can't be changed. But we do not But have you ever read these articles? Usually they're in Reader's Digest. Someone who's actually uh, dying who writes I want to tell you that these last few months have been the best of my life I was able to make peace with this person make peace with that person and understand this and understand this <coughs> there's a book out I just read a story like this it's called um, Lights from Jerusalem by Sarah Riggler and there's a story in there of a man <coughs> who was uh, I don't remember the details he was very high in the board of education here and he was um, diagnosed with Lou, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease at the height of his career he was very like he had accomplished tremendous things he had written I don't know how many books and uh, and so for the next few years you deteriorate and at one point he like he was he had lost almost all of his um, <coughs> uh, mobility and what happens your lungs uh, fill up with liquids you can't breathe so he blacked out and he was basically dying 
And they took him to the hospital, and they asked his wife, do you want to resuscitate him? And his wife, it's, you know, do you want to resuscitate him? And she said, yes. And they saved his life, and the Lou Gehrig's progressed to the point that all he can do is basically move his eyelids. And, listen, this is, this is a true story. He's, he's still alive. It's like, he's, he's in Jerusalem. It's like, it's like so awesome. From the time that he was resuscitated, he couldn't move anything. He wrote eight books. He wrote eight books because there's a special computer program that you can control by your eyelids. Ah, okay. Okay. <coughs> He's written eight books. He gets something like 250 emails a week that he answers. And he, he, he says these have been the best years of his life. So you say, okay, how, how many prayers did he and his family pray that the new Gehrig's disease should go away? I'm sure they prayed a million prayers. For whatever reason, that he'll never know and will know. This, this is what he had to experience. It didn't go away. The decree was not rescinded. But what he did with it, with God's help, what he was able to accomplish, you know, he's probably fixing, you know, a hundred lifetimes with every blink of his eyes. So it's such a fine line about being able to change it. We don't, we don't know. <coughs> so all I'm saying, though, is what Hasidus teaches is that <coughs> there are decrees that you can. That, that's the point we want to make here, though. The point, the, the, the bigger point we want to make is that form represents, even after something's been signed and sealed and it's in delivery, so write a new decree. You can't return that one. It can't be changed. So write a new decree. That's what happened at home. That's the type of tshuva that form represents. And so we're told that Abdullo Yada is you don't get to Abdullo Yada like that. Right? It takes some people it takes quite a while, right? But in the process, we're supposed to be doing the, the deepest returning to our neshamas and to Hashem and having the deepest insight. That's what's supposed to be happening. That's what's supposed to be happening. So, I will stop here and I want to give everyone a bracha, including myself, that we should experience this at this point. We should experience this this joy, because it's all coming from joy. That's the secret. That's the, even the even the tears, the chuva, <coughs> the dot, it's all coming from the joy. Uh, as many of you know, we had uh, our, our first grandchild three weeks ago. <laughs> we had our first grandchild, and for those of you who know the story, we waited a long time, and it didn't it didn't come easy. And so when my, my son called, I'm getting tears right now. Mm-hmm. 
Das ist ja wieder zu kurz. Karte muss erscheinen. Anyway, so when he called, and, and he told me that the baby was born, we just cried on the phone. We couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. We couldn't talk. It was the most amazing thing. We were just bawling over the phone. So I was just saying that tears of joy, actually I need to wipe one time, the tears of joy, that's where they're coming from. Like there's, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no joy like when you cry, because you just, you can't, you can't hold it in, right? You just, you don't, you can't, it's just so phenomenal. You don't know what to do with it. Okay, so we should all be blessed with tears of joy this morning. Amen. Okay, let's sing.
is really connected to what we just learned, <coughs> the, the types of tshuva that we can do on Yom Kippur, and the types of tshuva that we can do on Purim. So, it says in the Torah, like this, it says, V'chaper aharam al karnotav achat b'shana, is talking about Yom Kippur. It says, Aaron will atone on the the corners of the Mizbeach, the Karnotav, once in a year. Achat b'shanat midam chatat With the blood that he takes from the, the special offering in Yom Kippur, he would take the blood and he would put it on the horns of the altar as a, a sign of atonement. But, but the sentence continues, Achat b'shana yechaper alav l'doratechem kodesh kodeshim hu l'ashem. Once in the year, he will atone on it for all generations. It is holy of ho- the holy of the holiest to God to God. You know, if you notice, it says achat b'shana twice in the same sentence, once in a year. So this, the general principle in, in learning Torah is that Torah doesn't waste any words. There's nothing superfluous. So why would you have to say achat b'shana twice in the same sentence? So the Slonimer explains in the most amazing way, he really took everything we just said, and he said the first half of the sentence, it says that Aaron will put blood on the corners of the altar once in the year. This is Yom Kippur. There's like a semicolon. Once in a year, he will atone for it for all generations. It's the holy of holiest to God. He says, that's Purim. Mm-hmm. That's Purim. Just like Yom Kippur comes once in the year. But actually, look at this. We have two. God's giving us Purim Katan and regular Purim and two days of each. <laughs> right? <laughs> But his point is is that there's one type of tshuva that's once a year on Yom Kippur, and there's one kind of tshuva that's once a year on Purim. Yeah. When it says the Dharma is that for all future yeah. generations? Meaning, yeah, meaning that even when there's not a temple, and even when this kind of kapara can't happen, there'll be a, a, a different type of kapara that will last for all generations. So I, I never learned that before. I just thought that was like mm-hmm. such a deep insight into the verse itself because the general principle is that the, the Torah doesn't use the same phrase in the same sense if there's not a chiddush. If there's not a chiddush there. But if, there's, if he does it for all generations, why, has, why should he have to do it every year? No, meaning for all generations, once, once a year huh? for all generations. Which is true about Yom Kippur. We have Yom Kippur even without a temple. But it's hinting to that there's there's two types of once in a year. One is Yom Kippur and one is Purim. 
Yeah. But the second one is interesting. It says that that's the Holy of Holies. And that's referring to Purim. <coughs> but on Yom Kippur, that's the once a year that the Kohen Gadol goes into the, the Holy of Holies. But we're told that this place called Adlo Yada, that is the Holy of Holies inside. That's the Holy of Holies inside. Yeah. No, I just, I, I mean, I just don't see the, um, there's something that I'm, I'm not connecting to here, that if, um, if, if you atones, you know, well, um, once a year for all future generations, then, let's say, for example, that, um, it would be a year we didn't do it, then that would um, cancel the atonement, or, or not, because if, because if it's all generations, then within one year. Within that one no, again, year. I think what the Dorotecha means, it was, it will happen every year for all generations. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, for all generations. Okay. You're right. It sounds like a contradiction. Once a year and all generations, but it means, like it says, Kimu Bukiblu. They established and they received for all generations. So there's days called Purim, but it was, it was received for all generations. Okay, so now... We brought up an idea before, but we didn't give it a name. This idea that we can send out a new decree. But the, but the, the Megillah gives a name for, it's perhaps the most important word in the whole Megillah, which is Nahathochu, which means they turned it upside down. Meaning Haman meant to destroy us all, and we were able to nahafochu, to turn it upside down, that he was hung on the very tree that he made for Mordechai. Like that's the epitome of nahafochu. <coughs> the very tree that he made for Mordechai is the one that he's hung on. So I want to explain a little bit. Yeah. That, uh, how does that connect to Yitzchel, who said that? What made him so impressed with Hashem and the Jewish people was exactly the way the Mitzvim were trying to destroy the Jewish people by drowning the Jewish babies. That's how they were destroyed. So is there a connection? To yeah, it's, it's the same. The same idea. It's, it, it, it's very close to saying Mida connected Mida. We're told because they drowned the Jewish babies, so they were drowned in the sea. In fact, you have Midrashim that go plague by plague, and say, this was a Mida Kenegad Mida. Most of God has actually had these Torahs. This was a Mida Kenegad Mida for that kind of slavery. So that, you're right, that's what Nafoku is. It's just, um, it's really a Mida Kenegad Mida. So, so I just want to make us aware of how important this concept is for us in a personal way. Now, something very interesting, in Sefer Yitzira, every month is associated with a, a chush, a sense. Every month has a sense. The sense, that, that means that there, are, there are 12 senses, of which five are the usual physical senses that we think of. Hearing, and sight, and taste, and touch, and smell. But the Sefer Yitzira says that there's seven more senses 
So the sense of the month of Adar, according to tradition, the Sefi Yetzirah comes from Avram. It wasn't edited and and released until uh, many people said it was Rabbi Akiva who edited the Sefi Yetzirah, but the wisdom comes from way before. So the sense of Adar is chok is a sense of humor, a sense of folly, a sense of joy. That is the sense of Purim. But the interesting thing is what is pointed out is that in nature, this is the least likely month for joy. Why? Because it's the last month of the year. Uh, we've, we felt it a little bit in Jerusalem. We've seen it in, in the Parsha class. This fall, we were, we were getting like really a lot of people. As soon as the cold weather hit and the rain, like people didn't want to go out. It was like, right? It was just... And when you live in a climate that winter drags on month after month after month after month, when you get to Purim, it's like, I'm, I'm so tired of the winter already, that by, by nature, it's the most likely month to be, like, depressed. Hmm. And also, the, the, each uh, month has an organ connected to it. So the organ connected to uh, Adar is... I don't want to get this wrong. It's um, it's a spleen. Thank you. It's a spleen, and the spleen, the Gemara explains, it, it produces bile. And in in the Gemara, it's called mora shechora, like black, like black bile. But it's it's connected in Hasidut to depression. It's connected to depression. So this is the most interesting thing. In other words, from nature and the seasons and the body, we're told that this month has you're most likely to be depressed this month. So what happens? It's all it's turned around to great joy. To great joy. And we're told there, there are three holidays in a row. But we don't, well, actually we are feeling it this month. This year it's four in a row. That there are holidays on full moons, and they're all connected to wine. Tubi Shvat is the full moon of Shvat. And Tubi Shvat Seder, you drink four cups of wine. Then comes Purim, and you drink wine. Full moon, tonight's the full moon. And on Pesach, full moon, and you drink four cups of wine? Yeah. I just want to say yeah. that um, at 5.30 this next morning, there's a total lunar eclipse. So just talk oh, about really? the whole idea of a full moon. Yeah, this morning? Mm-hmm. And reflected light. Wow. Totally... Mm-hmm. So... 
Well, what is so the, the moon is full, right? And then suddenly it's not there at all. Because the and then sun suddenly it's there again, which is totally not focal Purim Kassan, right? Oh, because the earth comes between the sun and the moon. Got it. And casts the shadow on the moon. Wow. Awesome. Wow. Awesome. 530. Right, so that's the connection between the full moon and the complete darkness. Right? The moon will be setting. Do you remember? Yes, we what was it? Was it last year or the year before that there was a full eclipse on Pesach? Am I remembering correctly? Huh. Is that a correct memory? Was <laughs> There was a so no. It was a no. It was in the middle of the night. Okay, well, let me <laughs> Does anyone remember that, or, or am I just imagining this? <laughs> I'm vaguely remembering the last two years that on Pesach, there was an eclipse on Pesach. Which coincides with Oh, no! It was on Purim last year! It was on Purim! I think I remember that. Am I correct? No, I remember standing outside on Purim and everyone was looking up and I'm like, what is this meaning? <laughs> what is it? It was an eclipse on Purim. I think it was last year. Thank you for telling us. Yeah. Uh, solar? No, lunar, lunar. It was the middle of the night. It was the middle of the night and like, God bless. I remember we were standing, it was a whole group of people. We were all up, and I think it was, it was the last one. It's amazing. So as you get up at 5.30. Preferably 5. 5, okay. So you get up at 6 or minute, so you get up an hour earlier. Can you repeat what this woman said about the, what she said and the significance of it? It made such an impression on Well, this means we're talking about nafoko, how everything is just turned upside down. Right. So here, uh, uh, an eclipse is, you have the full moon. Yes. And then you have, it becomes blocked out. Yes. And then it becomes full again. So it's like, from light to dark to light. Nafoko. I thought it was something about the sun coming up again. No, well, it's what she it's connected because the earth comes between the sun and the moon. The sun is here, the moon is here, and the earth and the, 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 makes the shadow on the moon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What were the four holidays again? You mentioned three. Two Bishvat? Yeah. Well, this year is from Katan. That's the fourth? Yeah. Oh. But in usual year, it's three holidays in a row. And Rabbi Nachman said, usually... Wine puts us to sleep. Wine, wine is, act, is actually, even though we, many people experience different, it's, it's really a depressant. It, it puts you to sleep. Mm-hmm. He said, but on Pesach or Purim, it wakes us up. Mm-hmm. It, wake, it wakes us up. Also, if you think about it, you have the three holidays, you've got Mishulash. Ah, Mishulash, yeah, but three, three in a row, three full moons, Three with wine, and all three have to do with redemption. Two Vishrat represents the redemption of nature. Because the trees are barren, 
and the sap begins to run again. It's like the redemption of nature. Purim is one type of redemption. And then Pesach is spring, which is the total redemption. And, of course, coming out of Egypt and everything. So, Reb Shlomo once gave a definition of freedom. I usually give this over at Pesach time. But um, we're told that there's a big connection between Purim and Pesach. As I mentioned before, that the original fast of Esther was on the 13th, 14th, and 15th of Nisan. Now, if anyone uh, noticed what usually happens on the 15th of Nisan? The Seder. So, Mordechai came to Esther and said, um, maybe you didn't look at the calendar, but if we fast three days, the third is Pesach. Right? We can't do that. So she said to him, what good will Pesach do if we're all dead? I mean, she didn't say it exactly like that, but that's what she meant. She said, what good will Pesach do if we're all destroyed? So that year, they fasted on Pesach. They fasted on Pesach. You know, there's a principle that a prophet is allowed to temporarily in a crisis situation um, overturn a law. An example that in not so recent history, it's 500 years ago, but on Tisha B'Av, 1492, which was the day that the Jews had to leave Spain, and most of them waited to the last minute trying to overturn the decree. And the leader of the generation was the Abarbanel, and he was he was a close confidant of of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella, and he couldn't overturn it. So he led personally led the Jews out of Spain on Tisha B'Av 1492, and he said, this Tisha B'Av. We're going to play music and sing and dance. He said, because if not, people are going to be so despondent. I mean, I mean, the people of Spain were very wealthy. They were leaving with their shirts on their back. And that year, as they crossed the border, they, they played music on Tisha B'Av. They played music. He said, like, okay, we need to survive here. And if people are broken uh, emotionally and psychologically, we won't make it. It's also the year that, uh, of course, the Columbus. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So that was also the beginning of Yeah. 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 Another nafokul, right? Nafokul. So, what was Rabbi Shlomo's definition of ah, Thank you. So, <laughs> what he said was, and this is how I heard it from him. Uh, but you can you can change the circumstances. But he said like this. He said, what's the definition of freedom? Yesterday I was sad. And last week I was sad. And last month I was sad. And last year I was sad. And five minutes ago I was sad. 
He said, freedom is one minute from now I don't have to be sad. I don't have to be sad. It's such a simple Torah, but to me it had a profound effect. It's it's just simple, but we can understand. In other words, these things are in our hands. You're sad a year ago, you've been sad your whole life. Freedom means you don't have to be like that. You can change in one minute. That's now focal. That's now focal. So it just occurs to me, I believe that um, where Columbus uh, landed was um, Aguadilla in uh, Puerto Rico, if I'm not mistaken. And going back to that whole concept of the water, you know, the water flowing over mm-hmm. you and then mm-hmm. washing you clean, that's, that, 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 there's a connection. Aguadilla is a, uh, yeah. In, yeah. in Spanish, is, um, is um, I don't know the exact translation, <laughs> but of course it's related to uh, agua. Oh, okay. Water. Okay. No, it's true. That, that's the basic concept. That's why they say that the Mashiach is born in Tishabah. Because God always gives the, the healing before the disease. <clears throat> so at this very moment that we're leaving Spain, America is being discovered. It's, it's very connected. Very, very, very connected. Very connected. So remember we said before, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, open your eyes, Mashiach is here. So the word Mashiach, you take the same letters, and you switch them around, spells Yismach. He will be joyous. And so the, the idea of this uncontained joy that we feel on Purim, is really the closest we can get to, to an experience of Mishnah. Rav Shlomo used to use this experience all the time when he wanted to express that something was beyond words. He used to, he used to come and say, I was just in, whatever, Paris, and I gave a concert for 5,000 people, and the singing and the dancing, he would say, it was like after Mashiach came. <laughs> That's it. That was his expression when he tried to say something was. I, I don't have any other words to, to tell you how, how how high it was. He would say it was like after Mashiach. But that's what they say. What happens in Purim, and it's because of the joy. Because there's no nothing else that can give us that taste of Mashiach like that unbounded joy. That unbounded joy. Okay, so there's a a type of joy where you, you get up on the tables Right, and you dance on the tables, <laughs> that kind of joy. And there's also a, a quieter type of inner panini joy. So, it's very interesting. There's a, a nigga I've been playing with 
that's taken over a year to come together, and it came together last night. It started in Toronto 14 months ago, and it was snowing, and I was uh, I was preparing to give a class that night. I was just sitting in the room and just kind of practicing Delson a little bit. I'm watching the, the snowflakes fall. So the first part of the Nigam came through. And then like six months later, a second part came through. And then last night, a third part came through. And then I, I realized that they're really, it's all part of one, one Nigam. So I put them, I put them together. So. But it's a very, very gentle, very gentle Nigam, and it's, it's a work in progress. I originally called the, the first part Snowflakes Gently Fall. That's what was happening. I have to say, it's a very difficult song to play. I'm, wor- I'm working on it.
Gewalt, 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 Gewalt. Okay, now, a new idea connected to what we've been saying. Remember we said that Sefer Yitzhira says every month has a sense. It also says every month has a letter that is associated with it. So the month of Adar is Kuf. She knows her sentence. It's the letter Kuf. So there's so many incredible connections. So first of all, Kuf is the only letter of the regular letters. You have the final letters that go below the line, but the only of the 22 letters, the only letter that goes below the line is a kuf, goes down. Okay? So the name of the month is Adar. So it's given over that we can read it Aleph Dar. The Aleph dwells. Now what does that mean? So, you can see a beautiful thing now, connected to the Parsha Shavuah. This is a little bit what we learned last week. Last week's Parsha was Tetzaveh. It's actually V'atah Tetzaveh. And you shall command. God is speaking to Moshe. And it's a number of things in the Parsha, but half of the Parsha about the close of the Kohanim. So the first thing that we learned, I learned this from Rob Ginsburg, is the Atta and you shall command, equals 913, which equals Bereshit. So the question is, so what's the connection? What's the connection of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and you shall command... Actually, you shall command them to bring you pure olive oil. So one beautiful connection is, what's the first explicit creation is light? So, that's, so here, the right sheet and light, and here is, and you shall command to take pure olive oil to light the menorah, wow. to bring light. But, we go, it's even deeper. Right? It's even deeper. And we learned that the word vi'ata and you, can you permute the letters, spells ta'aba. Desire. Passion. What does that mean? So, it's explained that there are a number of different reasons given for why did God create the world. But we're told that the, the most profound of all of the reasons is from a, the Midrash Rabbah, which says, that God had a passion, a desire, to have for himself a dwelling in the lower worlds. But listen to the words again. So the word Tava is there, the heat of that. 
God had a desire. Liot lo dira. Like we call an apartment. Dira, right? He wanted an apartment in Yerushalayim. Like everyone else. Right? God wanted an apartment in Yerushalayim. And not one that he was going to visit only on Pesach and Sukkot. He wanted one that he was going to live in all the time. So the word dira to dwell is adar. So what does Aleph Dar mean? Aleph Alufo Shalom. You've heard the expression Rabbono Shalom. Master of the world. Rabbono Shalom. In the Gemara it says Alufo Shalom. The, like today, an Aluf is a general. So God was called the, like, the leader of the world. The general of the world. Alufo Shalom. So Adar is Aleph Dar. So the connection with the Kuf, where does God want to dwell in the lower worlds? Which letter represents going below the line is the Kuf. That's the connection with the letter Kuf and Adar. But again, wait, there's another yeah. one. There's another one too. Yeah. That door reversed is raid, which means to go ah, down. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Right. The other one is Aleph red, yeah. meaning the Aleph goes down. Thank you. The olive goes down. So dar and red are the same letters, just reversed. It's it's connected. And this is connected to everything we've said about the mundane aspects of Purim. Where does God want to dwell? Of course he loves his angels and the spiritual beings. But God wanted a dwelling place in the lower worlds. In the physical, mundane world. So again, this is what Purim has over Yom Kippur. Is Dafka? That's what we said like a couple hours ago. We said we would get to it, but Dafka in the mundane—that's where God wants to dwell. But the mundane is not just the mundane. The mundane is full of holiness. So when we're told that when God created the world, according to the result, so the initial lights of creation filled the first vessels, and what happened to the vessels? They shattered. And when they shattered, though, each, we'll call it a shard of the vessel, contained a spark of light. So the whole cosmology of the Arizal gives over that the, the, the mission of the Jewish people is to find those sparks and to lift them up and redeem them and transform them and transmute them. And Rav Cook gave over the same Torah about bringing them all to Israel. That we, I mean, this is the Arizal's idea. We were in exile in order that we should find all of the sparks and then do what? Bring them back to Israel. Yeah. Does it also mean that, um, as some people say, that God needs us as much as we need God? Um, some people would argue putting it that way, but the answer is correct. I mean, the idea that we're, God wants us to be partners with Him is, is it, yeah. I mean, it's given over in the Gomorrah that when you do. Like when you make Kiddush on Shabbos, you become a partner 
with God. What are the last words of Kiddush? Asher bara elokim la'asot. That God made to do. So they ask, what's that last word doing there? La'asot. That, we, that God rested from all the work that, uh, that he created to do. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense grammatically. So they answer that the to-do means that God created the world in a way that there was still something to do, and that man had to do. But isn't it saying in uh, Azimu that uh, Hashem told Moses, I, I don't need companionship? Okay, there's all kinds of, we know God doesn't need anything. And yet we have, like we said, that God had a desire to have for himself a dwelling in the world. We're talking in the language of human beings. We're talking about a perfect God who needs nothing, did not have to create the world, is self-contained. But paradoxically, he did create a world, and a physical world at that, and a finite world at that, and a flawed world at that. So we're to- it is par- it's highly paradoxical. Highly paradoxical. But nonetheless, we're told that we are to be partners with God, and that's the way that God did it. Asher bara elokim asot. What for us to do? So why am I saying this? Because this is a Torah from Rob Ginsburg, that the Arizal called the letter Tzadi, he called the letter Tzadik. He added a Kuf on the end. You'll notice the Kuf is the letter after Tzadik. So he said, what is a Tzadik? One, you have to know that Tzadi, if you switch around the letters, is Sayid, to hunt. It's a beautiful story. He says, what is a tzadi? Tzadi is hunting for the sparks of light that have fallen to the lowest places. That's why he added a kuf to the letter tzadi, because the kuf tells us what the tzadi does. So what does Purim represent? Very, very high sparks that have fallen and are enclosed in the mundane world. So that's why, especially in the Kabbalah, they see so much potential in Purim. Because here, again, you have a day that seems like if someone knows nothing about Yiddishkeit. Like, picture the scene. Someone knows nothing about Yiddishkeit. Nothing. And he comes to Jerusalem on Purim. Right? And someone tells them, this is the holiest holiday of the year. <laughs> and he's like, what? And, and he peeks into certain yeshivas, right? And they're like, what? This is holiness? Actually, what? I experienced that in Australia. Okay. Exactly that, what you said. Okay, yeah. I couldn't understand Really religious, 
So Ashkenaz, they read some Mishnahs, and Sfar reads some Zohar. And the second paragraph of the Zohar says, Raza de Shabbos, he Shabbos. The secret of Shabbos is Shabbos. <laughs> I'm just saying this, it uses this word, Raza de Shabbos, the secret of Shabbos. Once, once we had a group on the Moshav of uh, Israelis, and uh, we, we were just doing the, the program with Shabbos. So after the meal, so we got together like for an Oneg Shabbos, and someone said, so what's the program? So we like, like looked at each other like, program? So someone said, Raza de Shabbos, he's Shabbos. The secret of Shabbos is Shabbos. The program is Shabbos. <laughs> That's our program, Shabbos. So we just, you know, we just sang and told stories. And that, that's, that was the show. Something else, though. If you say, um, all, all the, another translation for Zar is Forum. Um, you think about Forum is um, was the only holiday that was um, that, that, uh, sprang up in Galut. Ah, very, very nice. Very nice, yes. Yes. Very nice. That's actually why we don't sing um, Halal on Forum. As we were told, since the miracle happened in Kutzlaritz, it's, it's, it's a dif- different degree. It's a different degree. And others mentioned, by the way, this is very interesting, that the Megillah is in place of Hala. That the Megillah is like Hala. It's, it's a very nice, nice idea. Okay, so one other thing is we have two words that begin with Kuf that are also opposite. Klipa and Kedusha. Klipa are like shells of unholiness. And the word for holiness also begins both with a kuf. Now this is a very interesting thing because you, you see sometimes a root word in Hebrew will have two opposite meanings. For example, a prostitute in the Torah is called a Kadesha from the word Kadosh. So here, this is part of this, the Raz of Purim, is that the, the outside enclosement of Purim, one could mistake it for Klippa. Or, if one doesn't really know how to celebrate Purim, it ends up in Klippa. It ends up in Klippa. And where does prostitutes come in? Because I'm always interested in how deeply um, paradoxical Judaism is all through everything. Yes. Not, that I know, <laughs> not that I know everything. But, but so where did, how are we supposed to understand this prostitute being in, in the middle of things? Just... No, I yeah, I'm, I'm just I, an example. Yeah, I yeah, but no, but I have, I have a response. I understand. Okay. Way of See, explaining stay it. Stay with me for yeah, a yeah, yeah. Sure. Stay yeah. with me for a moment. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so uh, the, the paradox between the word for prostitute and the word for something that is kadosh. Okay. So, so yeah, yeah. So, how, how do those two link up, given 
uh, Judaism's paradoxical nature. Okay, so they represent absolute opposites. Yes. But opposites are always connected somehow. So I'll give you an example. The Baal Shem said, uh, this was just an example they used. He said, if, when you're davening and strange thoughts come to you, or um, uh, just start to take you off track. But he said specifically um, words that related to uh, sexual fantasies. So he said, well, what, what do you do with that? So the usual response is just push it out of your mind. So the Baal Shem said, that might be correct. He said, but... It's a good one because we all have strange thoughts and we got in them. All kinds of different things. So he said that if the thought is coming to you in the middle of davening, it's coming because it wants a tikkun. It wants a fixing. So you could push it out of your mind or you could take the opportunity to fix it. So he said, so he said if, if it's coming from fallen love, he said to take the opportunity and lift it up to a, that same that same strange thought, transform it into love of God. Mm-hmm. So here we have a, a kadesha mm-hmm. representing fall. We'll call it, we'll call it fallen love. Call it fallen, but there is yeah, yeah, yeah. there is some. In other words. I don't want to get into this too much, but let's say if someone goes to a prostitute, mm-hmm. what would a psychologist say? So they're not no, but at a deeper level, it's because they're lacking love in them. They, they, they they're looking for some. Kind, you could say very crudely they they just want mm-hmm. some physical pleasure, but really at a deeper level, right? Something that they can't yeah they, they can't find in an usual way. So. They have to do this way. But you had an also an answer. Well, that um, Kedusha, we look at it, Kedusha is energy, and it's and energy is new, I mean, energy is neutral. But and so it can either go in destructive direction of Kedu, of Kadesha or in a, a holy direction, which is Kedushin, which is marriage. So, it, so mm-hmm. I, I mean, the idea, I mean, yeah. the, the energy, a lot of things are energy in, in Yiddishkeit. But the idea, the, the energy itself is neutral, and depending on that's why that's why we dive in to spiritualize, to transform the energy into something holy rather than let it go into well, something. I, yeah, I, I think what I, mm-hmm. I, I my mind works in terms of concepts. I think that the the basic concept, overall concept of Judaism, is that anything can be transformed mm-hmm. into the for mm-hmm. the good. Mm-hmm. And that's why our people have survived. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what he said was very good, because here, yeah, this energy, yeah. like any other energy, can go in either direction. So that's why you have many words in Hebrew that the roots go in both ways. Okay, so actually we're, we're yeah. going to start to wrap this up. But before we do, though, um, this, oh, good. if anyone did not um, sign the want to be on our, our email list or want to put a star on the Simchat Shlomo if you would like more seminars um, with me coming so put a star there. Okay? <laughs>
I wouldn't put it that way, but he put it that way. So. Okay, so one last idea. One last idea. We'll sing a little bit more. Very interesting is that the letter Kuf comes in a word that's in the Megillah. He says, and we say it at Havdalah, by Yehudim Haita Ora the Simcha the Sasan by Yakar. Yakar means preciousness. Um, the Gemara makes a drasha that he thinks it's a filling. By Yakar. Now the word Yakar, precious, you're, you're going to do the same thing again. It, you switch around the letters and you get the word carry. So carry is called spilt seed. It, and in the Torah, in the curses, so it says, if you follow the commandments, you'll have everything good. And if you don't follow the, the commandments, and you treat them like like carry, then I will treat you in the same way. So I'm bringing this up only because it, the, the middle letter here is the kuf. So carry is connected to the word mikra. Circumstance. Um, it just happened that way. Coincidence. There's no rhyme or reason. There's no direction, no purpose. Nikra. It just happens. Now, and it has a kuf in it. Nikra. Now, why this is important is because the name of the holiday of Purim, strangely enough, comes from this concept. Why, why is it called Purim? For the lots. He cast lots. And, and what is it supposed to represent? However they're going to fall out, but that will be the day that will destroy the Jews. That's what he was doing. He was throwing the lots. And that will be the day. So the Midrash tells us it wasn't so, so haphazard like that. He was trying to figure out when can I destroy the Jews. So he started the Nisan. We'll destroy him in Nisan. I don't think so. They came out of Egypt in Nisan. God did all these miracles. I don't think so. No, it's too dangerous. And, he, and the Mitchell says he went through every month and there was something like very positive for the Jews. He comes to Adar and he's like, okay, what happened? Moshe Rabbeinu dies in Adar. They're left leaderless. Well, not really, but they no longer have Moshe Rabbeinu. Ah. So what are we told? We forgot something. Moshe Rabbeinu was also born in Adar. <laughs> Same day. Right? Same day. But anyways, the point is that the, that the, the name of the holiday Purim comes from the idea of, of lots. Just, just however it comes out, yeah. 
series of events in our life is not haphazard at all. It's all, there's a meaning to all of it, there's a reason for all of it. It's all for the good. And that's where we should reach our point. So, let's end with another bracha. I said lots of brachas. Lots of brachas. I'd say the moment before we reach Adelah Yadah, everything should make sense to us. You know that feeling on Shabbos where and it happens to me I wake up in the morning and it's, it's springtime and it's quiet outside and the birds are singing and the sun is warm and everything is beautiful and it just you get that feeling this is it this is like so we should all reach that up for it says in the Mishnah if you read the words are if you read the Megillah backwards you're not Yosef that's what it says in the Mishnah if you read the Megillah backwards, you're not Yosef. So let me ask you, does anyone have the Havamina? Does anyone think that someone's going to read the Megillah backwards? So what, what do the sages mean? So it's explained, the Mafreya means if someone reads the Megillah as if it isn't happening right now, they're not Yosef. They haven't fulfilled their obligation. So that, and this is on a national level. That's it. We said this a few hours ago. If 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 you read the story of Purim and you think that Haman doesn't exist today, and the same plans are not being cooked up for us, you're not guilty. You you you, you haven't. You haven't fulfilled your obligation of understanding the Miguel. Mm-hmm. But the same thing in our own lives. Mm-hmm. If we experience Purim as if it's something that happened a long time ago and we're celebrating it, and but the lessons aren't being integrated and absorbed, then it's like it kind of went over our head. So the bracha is that, like I said, before we reach Adelogedah, that we have that experience, like, we look at our own lives and we can see how it makes sense. All those parts that aren't so easy to make sense of it. But we, we, we see how they all make sense. And they're all there for a purpose, and there's a reason, and it's all good, and it's perfect, and we rejoice. We rejoice in our lives. Okay, let's sing one more song. If there's any wine or <laughs> anything left, let's finish it. <laughs> what do I do? Um, is there any wine left? No.
תעשה רק איך אנחנו מדברים. תסלח. כן, לחיים, לחיים, כאן זה לא last